Good morning. We're going to be in the uh, 42nd chapter of the book of Isaiah uh, this morning. If you uh, have the old-fashioned kind of Bible that's on ink on page, it's about halfway in the middle of your Bible. If you have the electronic kind, just find it and click, and there you are. I just want to give you a word. I've got a fairly lengthy intro and a fairly lengthy uh, time to establish some context and background. So um, it'll take a minute before we actually get to the text. And before I do that, I want to just take a, a moment of privilege, if I may. I'm thankful, uh, Oak Park, for, the, um, and for those of you especially who prepared it for the breakfast spread this morning. A very suitable way to uh, honor military veterans Believers, we need a biblical foundation when it comes to thinking about patriotism and love for country. But it is right and good for the church to recognize those who have served in the armed forces of the United States so that we may have the privilege to do what we do here this morning. And as two former military folks, both myself and my wife, served on active duty, uh, we are grateful for that gesture and we are also grateful as believers in Christ and in our love for the church, for the approach that the church gives to it. Thank you very much for doing that. <clears throat> Next week, we begin uh, our yearly effort to support Southern Baptist missionaries um, through what's known as the Lottie Moon Christmas Offering. We'll promote that effort beginning over the next four Sundays, starting next week, and then we'll take up our offering on December the 9th. Those of you who have been to Oak Park for a while will remember that routine. I just want to use this time to introduce to you uh, by name, our missions team, Kyle Kingry and Corey Bledsoe and Colin and Valerie Dynam and Jeremy Sumners and Linda Clark and myself make up that team. And our role is not just limited to making sure that we do mission trips, but our role is, is uh, meant to help uh, encourage the church and lead the church in a variety of ways to become more missional in our overall thinking in the life of the church. The elders have approved a goal of $20,000. $20,000, that's ambitious, yes it is, but the work that we seek to do, church, is an eternal work. And so what price is too high for us to think as we give towards that kind of lofty goal and even better? So as you listen this morning, I am praying that this sermon will encourage you to give generously and sacrificially for that. Now let me put my uh, hermeneutical or interpretive cards on the table uh, there is debate about whether Isaiah wrote the whole book of Isaiah. I side with those evangelicals who treat it as one work, one book. In fact, we might summarize the entire book uh, this way. God will bring glory to himself through a renewed and a restored people of Israel. And in turn, the glory of God revealed in the people of Israel will serve as a light to draw believers from every people group on the planet. One more interpretive card, if I might. There are four servant passages in the book of Isaiah. I'm going to be preaching on one of them this morning. I join with those who identify the servant in those servant passages as the Messiah, the Lord Jesus. We heard earlier in our reading from John chapter 1 that John agrees with that. John the Baptist was not the light. He came to bear witness about the light. And in doing so, the baptizer pointed to Jesus as the true light who was coming in to give life-giving light that would overcome darkness and death. Now, John's gospel makes this connection 700 years, approximately, 
after Isaiah was written. And that helps us as modern readers, 2,000 years later, read and confirm that the servant is Jesus. So I'm working from that understanding as I preach this morning. Today's passage is the first of four servant songs, what's called servant songs, in the book of Isaiah. And as you read them, they build one on another, beginning in chapter 42. And there are common threads woven throughout these servant songs about the person and the work of the Lord Jesus. In Isaiah 42, we will see this morning that God introduces and commissions his servant for the calling that he has placed upon him. In Isaiah 49, the servant identifies himself as the true Israel. It's important. And testifies to the worldwide impact that will take place as a result of his coming. In Isaiah 50, the servant speaks about his destiny with the cross. And indicates the cross will not be the last word for him. And then in the longest and most comprehensive of the songs in Isaiah 52 and 53, the servant, it reminded the servant will be lifted up on a cross as a propitiation for sin, so as to satisfy the wrath of God. We're reminded that that crushing death that Jesus would experience on the cross was the will of the Lord himself, so that many sons and daughters would come to glory. The prophecy also reviews for us a resurrection. The servant Jesus would see his offspring and prolong his days, and the will of the Lord shall prosper in the work of what the Lord Jesus carries out for us. The servant songs sing a chorus, if you will, of the hymn that is given to us in Genesis chapter 3, where we read that Satan will bruise the servant's heel, but as Pastor Chase pointed out for us from Romans 16, it is the servant himself who will ultimately crush the head of his great foe. That's larger context. Let's go ahead. I've got a little more, but let's go ahead and read the passage because now I'm going to narrow in on the passage itself. I think it will be on the screen. Isaiah chapter 42 We're going to read verses 1 through 9. Isaiah 42, verse 1. Behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break. A faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not grow faint or be discouraged until he has established justice in the earth. And the coastlands wait for his law. Verse 5. Thus says God the Lord, who created the heavens, stretched them out, who spreads out the earth and what comes from it, who gives breath to the people on it and spirit to those who walk in it. I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations, to open the eyes that are blind, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, from the prison those who sit in darkness. I am the Lord, that is my name. My glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. Behold, the former things have come to pass, and new things I now declare. Before they spring forth, I tell you of them. Lord, bless the reading of his word. Uh, One more word of disclosure here. I intend to use this text this morning, justifiably, I think. I intend, and if not, you guys will tell me. I intend to use this text for the sake of the gospel and to give us the ability to begin to think about what we're going to be doing with the Lottie Moon Christmas offering. 
And this Bible's help us see, at least it should for you, most of them I think. The text lays out pretty nicely for us in two parts, and that's how we'll approach it this morning. In part one, in verses one through four, we see the announcement of the coming of the servant and what his mission is going to uh, undertake. And that, that is given to us in the language of justice. We're going to look at that word in just a moment. Then in part two, in verses five through nine, Isaiah declares that the mission of the servant will be under the full authority and power of the one who sends him. That is the Lord God. In other words, when we think about that, we can recognize right away the servant will not fail in what God is sending him to do. In the first part of the passage, the word justice in the ESV translation anyway is used three times. So we need to get our arms around what that means when we think about it. At the risk of greatly oversimplifying that definition, I'm going to use it this morning, this way. It represents how people would live in a society under the rule of God. It's a comprehensive definition, probably a little simplistic and needs a little bit more unpacking. But I don't want to spend the next 30 minutes defining justice, so let's work from that definition if we can this morning. Maybe we would say it this way. Biblical justice is a concept that is best understood when it's applied within the kingdom of God. The need for justice and the absence of it are common themes throughout the Old Testament. Threats to justice existed in flawed leadership in Israel, and, of course, threats to justice also came from external influences. In the context of our passage this morning, Isaiah is writing to a people who are in exile. And so they are suffering the injustice of oppression and captivity because of that from the Babylonian Empire. But that wasn't the only cause of injustice for them. And we study history and think about history. We will know very quickly that justice has been found wanting throughout history. Israelite history is no different from that. And their quest for justice, if we know, we think, involved the establishment of a monarchy. If we can just get a king to rule over us, then all will be well. But a reading of the Old Testament shows us that those Israelite kings, both north and south, were ineffective in establishing justice as we are thinking about it this morning. In fact, many of those very kings perverted justice for their own gain, and others failed to establish it because of military defeats. We could argue, I think, thinking historically about Israel, we could argue that the reign of David helped to make national justice for the people of Israel possibly an achievable goal. It's a time when the, when the tribes united and came together. Then under Solomon's reign, though still imperfect, justice as we would see it in the Old Testament reached its zenith. But that didn't last. And what we learn through Scripture and from our own experience is that no human government will ever obtain perfect justice on earth. Yet as we come to the text, God boldly declares to us a soon-coming servant whose task is to bring forth justice to the nations. And in the first coming of Jesus, if we think about it in these terms, Jewish society was introduced to those higher ideals. We think of the Beatitudes. We think of Jesus repeatedly saying, you have heard it said, you have heard it or seen it written, but I say to you, you have heard it said, but I say. He's clarifying those things for us. But his death on the cross became the ultimate guarantee of the coming justice. But that justice is still not here 
in its fullness. So in the meantime, in the meantime, we are called as believers to pursue a just society by loving God and loving our neighbor. In Micah 6, you know the passage in verse 8 of the things that please God, the kind of things that will please God is to do justice, love kindness, and walk humbly before God. So as we read in Isaiah 42 and reflect on the fact that God's judgment, excuse me, God's justice is not yet in place, we're driven to look to the gospel and our own need for Jesus and the thinking about how he comes to bring justice for us. So that's a lot of background, but let's use that as we get into the passage. Just to refresh, let's read verses 1 through 4 again. Behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not grow faint or be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth. And the coastlands, that is, all over the earth, wait for his law. The first thing I want to point out for us in the first point is that God presents his servant and announces his mission. Now, when God speaks of his servant, his description shows us Jesus. The servant of God is the son of God. And he will carry out the will of God under the influence and the power of the Holy Spirit. If one is thinking in these sorts of terms, you see a reference to the Trinity there. The servant's mission is straightforward for us. He is being sent to bring forth justice to the nations. Look at it the other way. The servant's mission is to abolish all injustice so that God's people will live under God's rule with the blessing of God in their lives. We look at verse 1. I want to call your attention to the intimacy in the language. You see this? God is not just sending a prophet here. God is not even ordaining or anointing a king here. He describes this servant differently. He says, my servant whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights. Matthew's gospel draws from this passage in chapter 12, and he provides similar expressions for us also in the episodes of Jesus' baptism and the transfiguration. So again, we, we can nail down for our thinking These accounts help us identify who is this servant. Many options have been proffered, but I think the scripture is most clear when we see the servant as Jesus. By seeing the servant as Jesus, that moves us toward this truth. In verse 2 and 3, the aim of God's mission through his servant is to bless the nations. The servant comes to do good for God's people. See the heart of compassion in these verses. A bruised reed he will not break. A faintly Burning wick, he will not extinguish or quench. Those of you who are, many of you in this section and those of us who are elders, these are good words for us to remember when we are dealing with hard ministry cases. When we're trying to address people who are struggling in some particular way and they're hurting, we need to remember that this is a, this is a bruised reed we're trying to deal with. So how do we deal with them in such a way that teaches them and raises them up and loves them and encourages them, even corrects them? but does not break them or extinguish the ember of love for Christ that might be burning very low in their spirit at that particular time. The servant of God is is not a tyrant. 
He's not a harsh king. He doesn't come with loud armies and great cries. He cares for those who are under such tyranny. He cares for those who are under such oppression. He establishes justice with compassion. But lest we move Jesus into a realm where we should not do, I think there's a hint for us in verse 3 that we don't want to miss. The servant's compassion is not a sign that the servant is weak or incapable in any sort of way. When God declares that his servant will faithfully bring forth justice, we can be assured of his success. The gospel accounts teach us that the authority of the servant has no predator, and his power knows no equal. In fact, we hear the servant speak in the gospels, and when he speaks, all creation listens to his voice. The winds cease and the waves grow calm. Demons flee without a fight. Sickness departs without medicine and disease are cured without surgery. The blind see and the lame walk. The dead come out of the grave when the servant speaks. This is the servant that God is sending to establish justice on the nations. So we are assured in knowing this. Looking at the Gospels, we look back to Isaiah and we are assured this servant is faithfully accomplishing all that God has sent him to accomplish. Cross has paid the penalty for our sin. The resurrection proves that death has lost its sting. And the second coming will confirm once and for all that God's justice will reign over the earth. There's great power in God's justice. There's power to rescue the captive. There's also power to bind the captor. In the Gospels, Jesus declares the power of God's people, excuse me, the power of God's justice to set free the, the captive. The servant came to seek and save those who were lost. That is the justice of God. The servant came to offer forgiveness and redemption. That is the justice of God. The servant came to show the world that the justice of God is also the hope of the gospel. For all who hear and believe in the servant will be saved. The justice of God comes to set free the captive. Maybe some of you are here today and you're, and you're, and you're believers and you're, and you're captive to some difficult circumstance going on in your life and you can't seem to shake it and so you're wondering perhaps where the presence of God is or the power of God is in your trial to make it go away. Or like the Kingery family who are having a ceremony to honor uh, Kyle's dad this afternoon, they've been, they've been wrestling with the grief of an unexpected death of Daryl. So what do they do? How do they think about these things? They think about the servant who comes, who will not break the bruised wheat, uh, wick, excuse me, reed, and will not put out the faintly burning wick. He will speak with great compassion and calmness, and he is here to care for you. That's the justice of God in your life. Imperfect yet at this stage, we know that it is there because Jesus died and rose again to prove that for us. The justice of God comes to set free the captive. Perhaps this morning you're captive of sin. Again, as a believer, sometimes we get caught in it and we have a hard time getting out of it. Praise God for His grace in the church to help us do that. But perhaps there's a sin in your life that you, that you can't overcome. I pray this morning for you and encourage you to seek out assistance for that. The church stands for you as a servant of the servant, as a shepherd to help you come free from that captivity. The Lord Jesus has promised that freedom. 
if we will avail ourselves of the means to be set free. The justice of God comes to set free the captive. There are some of you here this morning who are captive to your sin and who are not yet followers of Jesus. And you are truly captive to your sin. And unless you turn from that and believe on the Lord Jesus, your sin will destroy you for all of eternity. That's the truth of the Scripture. And so I invite you this morning to receive the promise of the gospel that all who call on the name of the Lord Jesus will be saved. Be free from the captivity of your sin. It is a liar about what is good for you. It is a destroyer of your soul if you leave it untended. I invite you this morning to seek out someone before you leave. And he's talking about captivity and all these other things. What's he having reference to? Perhaps the person that you ask will do like Philip did with the eunuch and go to Isaiah and begin to share with him who this Jesus is. He is the one who can set you free. And let me remind you that God's justice also has power to bind up the captive. You see, when we think about the justice of God, we need to remember that the coin of God's justice has two sides. God desires to save, and he delights in rescuing sinners, but he will not leave the unrepentant guilty unpunished. His justice includes a just and a righteous wrath for those who will not repent and believe in Jesus. The servant of God came to establish justice throughout the earth. And verse 4 confirms for us, he will not fail in what God has sent him to do. He will accomplish his mission. How can I be so sure as I say this? How can I be so bold in declaring this? Because I believe what God says through his prophet in verses 5 through 9. Look there with me. Thus says God the Lord. We're going to land on that sentence in just a moment. Who created the heavens and stretched them out. Spread out the earth and what comes from it. Who gives breath to the people on it and spirit to those who walk in it. I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations, to open the eyes that are blind, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, from the prison those who sit in darkness. I am the Lord. That is my name. My glory I give to no other nor my praise to carved idols. Behold, the former things have come to pass, and new things I now declare. Before they spring forth, I tell you of them. God has established his plan. Speaking through his prophet here, he has established his plan, and he keeps his promises. Verse, one, verse 5, we see God validate that by declaring his sovereignty. You read verse 5 and you read words about creating and, and putting things on the earth. And, and if you know the scripture at all, your mind is chased back to in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. We read from John 1, similar sort of language that Jesus was involved in that as well. It was God who stretched out the galaxies that cannot be counted and filled them with innumerable stars. God did that. It was God who placed the mountains and told the oceans. Only God can say this far Pacific Ocean and no farther. Only God can do that. He declares his plan. He validates his plan here by declaring his sovereignty. In the New Testament, Paul tells the Greeks in Athens this way, God made the world and everything in it. God himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. God is Lord of heaven and earth. I rejoiced over the providence and the attentive uh, heart of our worship pastor as we sang song after song after song about this great God and his glory. 
He either just woke up and chose those songs and thought they'd be cool, or he probably looked at the text and said, I think this may be where he's going, so let's sing these songs. I rejoice in his attention to that. It's good for us to sing about this majestic and mighty God that saves us, that sent Christ to die for us. It's good for us to behold his glory in our voices in worship. Thus says God the Lord, sets forth a solemn guarantee that none can remove. As a preacher of the gospel for over a couple of decades, many a time as I've worked my way towards Sunday, the enemy begins to whisper in my ear, you don't have it, you're not ready. You know, you did that last Wednesday. Are you sure you want to preach after doing that last Wednesday? He is cunning. Did God really say that you are equipped to preach, preacher? And so I I have over and over and over again ran to this verse and encouraged other preachers with this verse. In Isaiah 55, 10, For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater. Verse 11. Listen, preachers. So shall my word that goes out from my mouth, it shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and succeed in the thing for which I sent it. Thus says God the Lord is a guarantee for us. It cannot be taken away. Isaiah reveals then in verse 6 and 7 the commission. What's the servant going to be about? We read those verses a couple of minutes ago. Four times the word you is mentioned in those verses. And I would remind you that you is singular. Again, helping us understand who we're talking about here. First, I want us to see God's authority over his servant. I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. Then we see his promise to sustain the servant. I will take you by the hand and keep you. Then with that assurance in mind, he lays out his mission I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nation to open eyes that are blind and bring out prisoners from the dungeon, from the prison, those who sit in darkness. Just last Sunday, as happens the first Sunday of every month, faithful men and women go to Clark County Jail and preach this gospel of rescue and hope to those who are prisoners there. Every month they tell the inmates, no matter who they are, where they've been, what they've done, there is no person that the gospel can't reach. There is no captivity from which the gospel cannot bring freedom. There is no darkness that the gospel light cannot overcome. There is no sin for which the gospel cannot bring forgiveness. You may not be in Clark County Jail wearing an orange outfit. If you're here this morning and you are lost, you are not in Christ. This same promise holds for you. With the Bible in hand, Oak Park preachers confidently tell the inmates what all of us need to remember. All people need the gospel. And the gospel is able to save all people. And the implications from these two verses as I thought about them through the week, and it began to sink into me this way as I kept looking into these verses. Speak loudly to every one of us. I find application in these verses, saints. Listen with me here. In verse 6, Jesus is called 
and, and, and will be made perfectly righteous. I have called you in righteousness. Followers of Jesus should seek to be perfectly righteous. That means that everything that we do for the name of God, we should do to honor God. It tells us one more layer. It tells us that even followers of Christ, we will not compromise the character and the reputation of God to accomplish the will of God. Pastor Chach taught us about false teachers and how they bring those things into our mind. We are called in righteousness. And yes, our goals are lofty and we should be aggressive and ambitious in reaching people with the gospel. We should never compromise the character of the one who sends us for the sake of reaching someone who doesn't know him. Verse 6 also reminds us, God will sustain his servants, that's you and me, through every trial and struggle that seeks to hinder or prevent his work. So when we're running up against hard hearts and talking to them about the gospel or we keep having plans or ideas or dreams or intentions to share and something gets in the way, God will sustain us through those challenges. And verse 7, it's a call to missions. When we go forth with the light of the gospel, God promises us blinded eyes will see and prisoners to sin will be set free from their captivity. Whenever the light of the gospel goes into the dark, somebody's coming out. Thank you for that amen, Gary. I appreciate that. Before we move on, I'm drawn to this language on the servant Messiah in the terms of covenant and light. I think it helps us. Let's begin with light. That's, if we're familiar with the scripture, that's a probably a more familiar metaphor for most of us. John, in particular, uses light and dark over and over again in his writings. The Bible teaches us that sin is, is conceived under the cover of darkness, and it grows and spreads as long as it stays hidden. In John 3, Jesus tells us that people love the darkness because their works are evil, and we want to hide their works of sin. We get that even as believers. That's why we resist confessing that we want to stay in the dark because we love our sin. In Ephesians 6, Paul writes about the present darkness in the world, referring to Satan's influence as the ruler of the power of darkness. Darkness is where all of us are before we come to Christ. Like Adam and Eve, we're hiding from God. Loving the darkness, hiding from the light. But when the light of the gospel is shined on the sin in the heart, those hearts are broken and the gospel is able to bring healing. John writes that darkness could not overcome the light that comes in Jesus. We read that in John 1. Jesus says in John 8, uh, talking about I am the light. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. I, I, I think most of us who know scripture at all, the gospels, especially in John's writings, understand the metaphor of darkness and light. But it struck me, I don't say brand new, but freshly perhaps, personifying the notion of covenant is less familiar for us, I think. Thinking about the covenant in the form of a person is less familiar. I'd have to survey you and you'd have to be honest with me. But I think it's less familiar to think about it in those sorts of ways. It's helpful, though, because thinking about the covenant in the form of a person drives us to Jesus. We tend to think about covenants as something impersonal. A promise, maybe, of some sort, but not a person. 
Yet in Luke 22, Jesus himself, in instituting the supper in, in Luke's gospel account, testifies to his own blood as a covenant between God and man. So when we think in terms of God's covenant promises, we see Jesus as the ultimate fulfillment of those promises. That's why Paul can say in 2 Corinthians 1 verse 20 that all the promises of God find their yes and amen in the Lord Jesus. Seeing Jesus as the personal fulfillment of God's covenant walks us up, I believe, to verse 8 and 9. In verse 8 and 9, God declares his godness. That's an awkward term, godness. What does that mean? Well, it's Yoakum's uh, inability to come up with a word that's not godness that fits what I think the passage is saying. That's, that's what that is. I'm not first with it. I won't claim the originality. But I thought about words like supreme and superior and the different words that we use, and we would understand them, and I think most of us would take them for what they're meant to mean. Godness is a unique word. It's a different word. But I think when we think about the Lord in all that he is, I think it's a helpful word. Recall from verse 5, God testified about his sovereignty in the language of creation. Then in verse 8 and 9, he declares his sovereignty in a language that has no competitor. That's why I'm calling this the godness of God. Only God can say, I have said this and it's going to happen. And nothing can prevent it. In verse 8, he identifies himself by his divine name, Lord, Yahweh. So observe with me, when he describes himself in this way, he is declaring that he is eternal, he is self-existent, he is unchanging. There are a few other uh, words that we could use there to describe what God is saying by using, calling himself in that name. It means he's above his creation. It means he's transcendent over it. There's no other being like this Yahweh God. By describing himself in these terms, he's also expressing his sole claim on glory. You see that? I am the Lord. That is my name. My glory I give to no other. The glory that God protects for himself, saint, should be the highest motivation for the life and the work of everyone who is his. We evangelize the lost so God will get glory. We engage in missions. We send people on the field in missions so that God will get glory. We worship and we pray and we sing and we read and we preach. We do all of these things for the ultimate end that God would be glorified through them. Every other goal, though it may be good, is lesser. Paul says it in the clearest of terms, simple terms, so all of us can understand whether you eat or drink, whatever you do, whatever you do, do it all to the glory of God. So there's no realm of activity, no realm of our lives that should not be lived out towards the ends of his glory. By describing himself this way, we see in this verse, God rebukes idolatry in every form. The glory that God reserves for himself is not the realm of the creature. It is the exclusive realm of the creator. He will not share his glory with any form of idol that can come from our imagination or our hands. Don't think statues. Think sports heroes. Don't think statues. Think favorite TV shows. Don't think statues. Think about the things that draw your attention. Video games, whatever it might be. I've got my own that I have to wrestle with. But they are replacing our thinking and our thoughts and our love for God. Anything that supplants the thoughts of God is an idol. And God will not share his glory with those idols. The godness of God helps me understand 
that he is not first among many gods. He is not a better God than other gods. He alone is God. In verse 9, Isaiah ends the paragraph in the language of prophecy. Verse 9 helps us look back. What God has declared in the past has occurred just like he said it would. I, don't, I made that sound pretty common, didn't I? Sorry. What God has declared in the past has occurred just like he said it would. That gives us confidence looking forward, saying, think about this. What, because God has been faithful in the past, every time we can cling to his promises and his prophecies for the future because he doesn't change. It's his glory that he is guaranteeing and, and reserving. And what he declares for the future will occur just like he says it will. There is great gospel promise in that. In fact, I've described the gospel to people with these words. God is who he says he is, and he will do what he says he will do. That's the essence of the gospel. Now, there's more to it. I know it. I can see you southern guys. The wheels are rolling. I get it. I get it. But isn't it true when you're trying to explain to someone who doesn't understand all those terms? What does that mean? It means God is who he says he is. And he's going to do what he says he's going to do. You'll either believe that to your eternal judgment, or you'll believe that to your eternal salvation. You'll either learn that to your eternal judgment or believe it to your eternal salvation. Here's, here's where that helps us. The faith of God's people can be firmly grounded in the faithfulness of God. All right. Let's uh, circle for a landing here. Jesus is the servant of God sent to establish justice among the nations. He's the bringer of justice. He is the ultimate fulfillment of justice. That's God's promise to us. And when we look to Jesus as God's servant, we remember who Jesus is and why he came. He came to establish justice among the nations by bringing salvation for sinners. So I have, you've been waiting on this. I have two lists for you. First one is a brief summary. Let's do that one first. I, why have I spent so much time talking about the gospel in this passage? What's driven that? Three reasons for me. I've spent so much time focusing on the gospel of salvation for sinners as a sort of a corollary or, a, or an outworking of justice connected with it. Because the gospel is what the text points us to. Jesus comes to open blind eyes and release captive prisoners. I spent so much time on this because the gospel explains why he came. He came to be a covenant for the people and a light for the nations. And I've spent time on this because it is only through the gospel of Jesus that justice ever will be ultimately and completely fulfilled on the earth. That's why we talked about the gospel so much from this text. So before I pray, I want to go ahead and invite the music team up. I have one more list I want to share. The guys and girls can come on up. I want to draw some implications from this passage to help us think about the Lottie Moon Christmas offering. I acknowledge before you these are subjective on my part, but that's where my mind is working right now. And I want to stand on this passage, again, I think justifiably, to offer them as a call to us to generosity. I think these are on a slide as well. As you think about the Lottie Moon Christmas offering, think about the need for justice on the earth. Much of the world, much of the world, perhaps most of the world, is trapped in oppression, tyranny, and injustice. 
we see injustice in America when a wealthy guy gets off when a poorer person would not have. And that is unjust. That pales in comparison to what's going on in most of the planet. As you think about Lottie Moon, Christmas offering, think about the power of the gospel to establish justice in the hearts of people. As those who are tyrannical over others, by God's grace, would come to Christ, would soften their heart towards those they have power over. Reaching the nations is God's plan for establishing justice. Third, as you think about the Lottie Moon Christmas offering, think about the hope for justice as we unleash that hope through our support for Liz and the Kiefers and the Parhams and the Phillips and others that you would know by name in the thousands serving with the International Mission Board. This one's not on your list. As you think about the Lottie Moon Christmas offering, reflecting on this passage in Isaiah 42, ask God to stir up in your hearts a spirit of sacrificial generosity. For the sake of justice on the earth, for the souls of unreached and unengaged people groups who have no category for God's justice, for the spread of the gospel, for the glory of God. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for the servant songs in Isaiah. They are rich and full. They, they create immense motivation for thinking and reflecting, for rejoicing and for praising, for repenting, for evangelizing, and more. They are, they are so full to our hearts because they are full of Jesus. So we thank you preeminently for him. Thank you, God, that you desire and will have justice throughout the earth. Your people and your land, under your rule, receiving your blessing. Come quickly. Jesus. Amen.